I think to get us started off, I mean, there's a lot of places we could start. I think the 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 most interesting place for folks to know is kind of you have like one of the best titles uh, of <laughs> of folks who who I know. So, uh, can you tell us? I know right now you're listed as the head of learning engineering at Tailspin. Can you tell yeah. us a little bit about what learning engineering is? Absolutely. So yes, I am head of learning engineering at Tailspin. And what learning engineering is, is uh, both a process and a practice that applies the learning sciences, human-centered and design engineering methodologies to support learners um, and their learning environments, really. And so learning engineering as a practice, you know, what my job is, is to really understand what the conditions are for for supporting learners throughout our learning experiences and our learning ecosystem and using data-driven decision-making to do so and setting up that infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So already I know like in our field, instructional design, like there's instructional designers and learning designers. So if we think about like instructional design as like being based in instructional theory, where mm -hmm. does that intersect with uh, learning engineering? Is it more, more application of data in a special way or... Um, I, I guess, how, do, how does it differ from what we previously know about learning roles at, at, at different companies? That's a great question. And I would say that learning engineering, as compared to instructional design, does apply those same disciplines, right? So learning engineering is a combination of learning experience design, instructional design, user-centered design, user research, uh, data science, learning analytics. So it, it's really a combination of um, many different disciplines. And I would say in terms of you know, how we might compare that to what we traditionally know or think about instructional design, we could think about it as applying data-driven decision-making to instructional design and really uh, thinking about it from a data-centric point of view for that iterative uh, design and development of our learning solutions. Got and it. we and can't <laughs> we can't forget the application of learning sciences. And I do know that, you know, at the core, that is something that we do with instructional design, um, hopefully, hopefully do, right? That's something that we're taught, you know, in in when we're going to school for or like any sort of I guess, higher ed programming for it. Uh, but I do acknowledge that that's not always front and center when we are applying it in practice. And for learning engineering, that is definitely something at the forefront. It's it's uh, funny you mentioned that. I mean, by this time, in if you're listening to the full episode, you will know that uh, I one of the wonderful opportunities I had was to go to school with Kristen. Uh, and uh, we studied instructional design theory together. I guess thinking back on those, it is interesting to me that a lot of the, when we talk about data-driven decision-making or data-driven design, I think what we, one of the big things that was harped on is instructional design theory, but I know mm -hmm. that he, that data piece was missing. And I think that's something that's missing from a lot of um a lot of learning curriculums about how to be a learning designer or instructional designer, whatever you're calling that. And I know from my experience, I only really got that like on the job, like on the job. And it, it was really dependent on if my company was, um, had good data, was tracking yeah. data, had the systems for data. So I'm, I'm wondering, you know, was learning engineering, was that something that you picked up on the way or maybe you took a class I didn't? <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. How did you start? Uh, you know, when did you start applying kind of that engineering approach? Because we do talk about a theoretic yeah. process in school, but um, mm-hmm. what that actually looks like, it has to be driven by data. In most cases, that was qualitative data, but I'm sure mm-hmm. you're focusing on it much more precisely. Yeah, that's a good question. So I discovered there's actually an IEEE they call it ICICLE. It's an industry consortium for learning engineering. There's a group that is helping to define what this discipline is. And I found them, I want to say in early 2021 uh, that I joined, they have a, a monthly meetup where uh, you know folks convene and learn more about the discipline. And they also have these special interest groups that I have joined to really help conceptualize what engineering learning engineering is in terms of instrumentation or or as applied to design. And mm-hmm. so I want to say that it was really when I first joined this group that I was able to put a label on it. Mm. But when I want to say my first job out of the teachers college, I was hired by an ed tech company that was very research focused. Uh we had received a number of different grants from the Department of Ed to either create learning products or educational games or evaluate the efficacy of them. And so for me, like research was very much at the core of the way I approached many of the design projects that I was a part of simply because we really had to go from paper prototyping to, you know, an alpha beta and then, and then release, because Mm -hmm. that was part of our contract with the Institute for Education Sciences and being able to explain, uh, being able to report that uh, to them and our progress for creating these educational products. And so for me, I would say that that data-driven decision-making and being able to iterate from one iteration to the next based off of this evidence that we've been collecting either from from users or from systems, that was very important to me. And I want to say from from the very beginning. Wow. Yeah, that's been, I think that's incredibly fortunate because I think a lot of learning folks, they get into, you know, if they get into traditional LMD and they're, they're working at a large corporations, like they're asked to tell stories with data. And Mm -hmm. if you haven't, if you don't have, you know, that analytical background or that analytical mindset, that's definitely a skill that you need to build. So I'm I'm glad you had that opportunity there. And then uh, I think that just thinking along, you know, your, your career, you kind of ended up at, at Tailspin where you're doing more, you know, you're doing VR based learning, which I think is, uh, which isn't, I think, that is something that uh, it's interesting because VR is an emerging technology. I think when it came out, I, I'm going to say it, it really made a big splash at 2017. That's kind of my experience with it. It's like it had this huge hype and I, I think the learning community got very excited about it. Um, I, I, I'm curious, you know, from your perspective and your slice of the learning world, you know, kind of what is the state of VR learning? Because it, it's been kind of folded in with all these other technologies that have come up since, but kind of a, where are we at the moment? I think we're at a very interesting place right now in terms of VR learning. I think, Mm -hmm. you know, the industry is really recognizing it as a viable medium, especially with 
more commercial headsets that mm-hmm. are fairly affordable on the market. I hope and I think that that will only get better as time goes on. You know, Apple is releasing a headset in Q1 of next year. It is fairly pricey, but if we think about the advancement of technology, I think it's only a matter of time before we're able to get more affordable headsets on the market with you know, crazy features that we can then leverage for learning. And I think with more affordable tech, there will be, the adoption will follow, right? Um, We've been able to sort of get around that nowadays with um, allowing things like web VR or access to immersive virtual reality reality experiences on desktop browser. Uh, But, you know, it doesn't quite have that fully immersive experience that one would have if they have a heads-up display on their on their head. Yeah, no, it's interesting because because the, the, I think thinking about uh, I, I'm I'm excited about the Apple Vision. I think um, I think it's it's a uh, it's a bit more wearable than mm-hmm. headsets that we've had before. And a couple of things that you mentioned there is like that experience of. I think we, everybody has the idea of what virtual reality is, but then the actual experiences, you have a computer on your, it's strapped to the, mm-hmm. strapped to your face. Like even the Apple vision, that is um, a really advanced computer and a really advanced display. And it'll, it doesn't even, you know, it, it's, uh, I think it's revolutionary in that it's not even just showing you a pass through or it's showing you a pass through meaning it's, you know, their cameras on the outside and it's showing you that image in front of your whole eyes yeah. and making that look like making that look real. But at the end of the day, it's, you know, still a, um, it, it, it plugs into a battery pack that sits in your pocket and it has an elastic strap that goes around your head, which I, I, I think is, um, Anybody who's tried a VR headset realizes that that is uh, a bit different than kind of what we imagine from the images of like Ready Player One, where it's a fully mm-hmm. immersive environment. So we, we've definitely come a long way. Um, and I think the Apple Vision hopefully is going to be the, the most comfortable version yet. Um, I hope so. Yeah, I agree. It looks so awesome. I'm really excited for it. I don't know if I'll ever have the opportunity to play it you know, in, the, in the near future, but I do feel like, you know, Apple has a way of just really changing the game, right? When it comes yeah. to technology and usability, right? Yes. So I'm really excited to see how the industry and our design practices will evolve with the release of this new headset. Yeah, and it, I, they're they're definitely the company that we want building the hardware. Um, but that leads me to think of the, what's what's inside. And when I think of why uh, in 2017, I think everybody got really excited about um, about VR content, mm-hmm. and you know, I you know, this idea of full immersion or immersive storytelling was very big. And I remember yeah. there's a lot of 360 kind of passive experiences that you can you could enjoy. But I think what was missing and why, one of the reasons that it didn't take off is there just wasn't any quality content. And in particular, if I think in in your field of, of VR learning, it was very much, um, I, I remember you could, the probably the best learning experience that you could have is, looking at uh, going on field trips 
and mm-hmm. kind of visiting places all over the world, but there wasn't really um, what I would consider quality content or interactive content. And I think that, that that's, if I'm not mistaken, that's kind of your expertise and where you play is this idea of immersive VR learning. Can you just give us an example of what, you know, some of those immersive high quality VR learning experiences are like? Yeah, absolutely. So we, while I've been at Tailspin, I've had the opportunity to design for both hard skills and soft skills. So I'll give you an example of what hard skills might look like first, and then we'll switch to soft skills, which is something that we've been focused on a little bit more. So for the hard skills training, I had the opportunity to um, help design this HVAC uh, training at a, a series of different labs that taught different HVAC services for technicians who would be going into the field. And I want to say it was it was probably one of the largest projects that I've ever worked on. And what was really great and cool about this lab was that it was actually a full recreation of a lab that students would go into. Um, for the program that they were in. And what this was meant to do was help students practice these HVAC services when they did not have access to the lab on campus. And so, you know, they were at the time, you know, during the pandemic distributed. And so doing some remote, uh, remote learning and remote work. And so they would, in theory, while we were, um, so they would, in theory, use these headsets to practice before coming into the lab to really help build their skills, their competence, and ensure they have sort of the right systems in place to be able to build their skills, come into the lab, do it a little bit, you know, be able to exert those newly acquired skills and capabilities observed by a an instructor right mm-hmm. and so yeah it did provide this opportunity for remote learning and bridging that gap to when they were going on campus it's interesting i i was just talking to somebody recently who was a um an air force training pilot and mm-hmm. something that he brings up is uh the idea of rigorous training is not mm-hmm. Uh, just being able to kind of have folks sit in a room and then get behind a cockpit. It's there's a lot of touches with the learner, a lot of intermediate stages. And it sounds like this where maybe the solution was a, a remote solution at the time. But then this is also if you look at that progression, they mm-hmm. have an opportunity to practice those skills in a much safer uh, environment rather than handling uh, the, the systems, uh, the hardware in front of them. Absolutely. And, you know, when we think about things like high cost, machines cost a lot of money, right? Potentially high risk circumstances. And so that's really what virtual reality is great for, right? It's a true affordances of virtual reality is that you can recreate and provide opportunities to practice in high opportunities of high stakes, maybe under the threat of danger, um, unusual circumstance or rare circumstances, right? And so these are these are things that we would like to prepare for, but may have difficulty trying to practice in those specific conditions. And really 
if you're designing a virtual reality training, those are the types of experiences that you would want to reproduce or recreate, at least for, you know, the, the time and investment cost, right? And that's not to say that that can't also be true for soft skills training, right? Mm -hmm. We There's oftentimes that we encounter uh, high stakes, high risk, right? Interpersonal risk um, experiences, uh, interpersonal experiences with others socially. And mm -hmm. those are times that we want to be able to prepare for and practice so that when we are faced with that situation in real life, you know, we feel confident in our abilities to apply our skills to then be able to succeed in the, those sort of high stakes, high risk conversations. Yeah, I think you bring up a good point where it's, you know, when you're talking about high stakes training, it's the the reason it's high stakes is because the consequence of doing the wrong thing or making the wrong decision uh, mm -hmm. has uh, the it's it's uh, magnified. So, mm -hmm. like I in those soft skills conversations, if you're learning manager training and you are trying to learn something like radical candor, it's mm -hmm. that's a, a situ or an employee is going through a difficult situation. It's uh, the consequences of saying the wrong thing in that moment right. uh, are could have extremely negative consequences. And I, I think a lot of the training that um, a lot of the training that we see uh, that happens in the workplace is low stakes. Like if mm -hmm. you were to even if you were to send out an email and maybe you forgot to hide some per, uh, PI uh, personal identifying information from a spreadsheet, yes, that could be uh, that could be bad. But if it's only going out to one or two people, that's not the worst thing in the world. But everything that it seems like is fit for VR is how can I get even just an attempt at a situation before I have to experience in real life? Is is that kind of the breakdown that you have as far as like what, like what is fit? I guess the question here is what is really fit for VR at this moment? Because yeah. um, I've seen things like public speaking and, and mm -hmm. that's a, a good scenario to be in, but um, it seems like this hard skills training where there's expensive machinery on the line or high stakes, that seems to be what qualifies for VR versus uh, something that would be less of a fit. Yeah, so that's definitely the case for for hard skills. When we think about soft skills, you know, we think about those really tough interpersonal situations that we get in, right? Maybe having to fire someone, maybe having to address sexual harassment with someone, um, building trust or re restoring trust on a team that you know, you're on or having to navigate conflicts within a team meeting, right? There's these really uncomfortable situations that we often find ourselves in that are sometimes just thrust on us. Yeah. But wouldn't it be nice to be able to have built our, our skills in these different types of conversations, right? There's, you know, perhaps there's topics uh, around DEI, right? Or there's topics about how to gain buy-in from stakeholders. You know, maybe you're pitching an idea to uh, to investors. That's a very rare and high-stakes circumstance that we, mm. you can't really replicate that until you are in it, right? Yeah. And so when thinking about what types of scenarios are best for VR, you know, you really want to think about those 
those instances in our lives and our in day to day that we may be facing that could that we, we may not even really feel comfortable participating in, right? Um, and you know, when we're thinking about virtual reality in general, you know, it's very immersive. And because of that, you want to be able to thrust people into these authentic situations and authentic scenarios. And when it comes to learning, right, that means that they're able that that brings that situational awareness, right? Yeah. But not yeah. only just like what they're seeing or you know, what humans are talking to them or what machinery they're interacting with, but it's embodied, you know, learners are expected to engage with the world around them, either through manipulating objects or talking to virtual humans, they are acting on this space, and then they're receiving the consequences of their actions. And so it's very embodied, very visceral. And what's great about virtual reality is as compared to some like a role play in real life is the repeatable conditions that yes. we're able to put learners into. I, 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 when you, what you, when you were talking about uh, the idea of role play, I mean, I think this is something that even in like face-to-face, -face, I know that a lot of, uh, a lot of more traditional LD folks prefer face-to-face -face so that they can see the reaction or things like that. But I think where it sounds like VR goes a step further is, you know, when it allows you to actually immerse yourself in the environment where those things are actually happening. Cause mm -hmm. in our role play, when you're sitting across from somebody who's sitting in a chair, um, in, in, you know, two chairs in front of the rest of the class, it's like, I'm not right. going to have this <laughs> sexual harassment conversation <laughs> in front of 20 of my peers. I'm going to be having it in a, somewhere on maybe offsite or maybe somewhere, mm -hmm. um, somewhere, a hidden corner of the office where I'm trying to preserve somebody's privacy. And so it, it's even just being in the environment that, that makes things change. Uh, two yeah. things that you mentioned are, um, the idea of, of the scenario. Mm -hmm. And then also, I think, um, and maybe didn't mention this yet, but when you say like repeat tries at something, there's mm -hmm. a, a component there of, of feedback as well, where you of get course, to yes. see what you did wrong and you get to, um, and you get to uh, respond to that and fix that. And I, I think before we get into actually building these scenarios, cause I think that's a, that's a whole world in itself. Can you talk a little bit about, um, what's the role of feedback in the, in these situations? Like, how do you, um, I think feedback, um, from previous conversations, it's about a, a big part of that is what is what you're noticing or what you're focusing on. Cause there's so many things that you could tell someone as they repeat a scenario. Can you mm -hmm. kind of walk me through how is feedback designed into the experiences that you produce at Tailspin? Yeah. So feedback is extremely important and there's different ways in which learners can receive feedback, right? And let's talk about formative feedback first. So in these conversational conversations, learners are engaging with virtual humans in first person. And oftentimes in terms of formative feedback, if this is a sort of a scored scenario, uh, we will track learners and really rate their different response options that they select. So can you, can you, can you break yes. that down for us? Like a, score, like a scored scenario. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So let's say we're engaged in a, or I'm in a conversation with a virtual human and perhaps 
this is a sales scenario and I am attempting to sell internet to, to a customer who has come into our store. Mm-hmm. And there, in terms of learning, there's certain things that behaviors that I would need to demonstrate to be, to have a successful sales conversation, right? I would probably need to introduce myself. I will need to um, learn about the customer's needs, maybe their lifestyle, draw inferences from what I'm seeing and what the learner or the virtual human is saying, and then address their needs and then recommend a solution that we may, our company may offer, and then have some, maybe there's like a closing line that I would need to say. And in those, so let's say that those are our key behaviors that we're looking for learners to demonstrate. And so when we're designing a conversational-based narrative, we will almost map out where those elements come in the different points of the conversation and provide those opportunities for learners to be able to articulate that to the virtual human. They may choose to do so in a specific way um, or or not, right? And based off of the decisions that they're making. So oftentimes we'll have like in a scenario-based conversation, you have three different response options that learners can choose from depending on the choice that they make and the, the response that they vocalize we will score what skills are demonstrated in that conversation and also how well that conversation aligns to the behaviors that we're looking for learners to demonstrate in order, you know, as aligned to the learning objectives. Mm. And so that occurs for every decision point. So we're really tracking learners every, like every decision learners make within the space and capturing what skills they're demonstrating, you know, whether or not they're uh, demonstrating the behaviors that need to be demonstrated in a certain point of time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And of course, we're always trying to allow learners to recover so that when they maybe make a misstep early on in the conversation, they still have an opportunity to succeed. Because that's what it's like in real life, right? Yeah. I I think the thing that comes to mind when I think of that is, you know, if I'm, if I were in the sales scenario and I reach a decision point and I select, let's say the raw, let, let's say there are three choices, A, B, and C, and I select mm-hmm. uh, A and the, and the correct response or the response that you're looking that to score correctly is C. What kind mm-hmm. of feedback am I g- given as a, as a learner? Yeah. So if you are, in a scored scenario, you may have, uh, we have these op- visual cue options that we can show learners. Maybe if you chose the really suboptimal response, it's a red. So mm-hmm. learners know like, oh, you know, that was not quite right. But they will also likely know based off of what the le- the virtual human then articulates to them. Yeah. And says, hey, that's not what I said, or that's not what I asked for. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, this unlike something like a, a multiple choice yeah. right? This is a, it's interactive and learners are, as they are experiencing this, uh, this conversation, they are experiencing the consequences of their, of their responses firsthand as they yes. would in real life, right? If yes. I, if you and I were talking and I start talking about something completely different, you're like, that is not the question I asked. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> can, can, can I, I think that it, the, it also reminds me that, you know, if I see red and I, there's like a trigger question, mm-hmm. it's also like, it feels like a bit of conditioning as well, where it's like, oh, yeah, that was the wrong choice. Now I'm aware, hopefully I'll do something that, that's feedback in the moment where I'm, I'm kind of right. processing Oh, when I see this, uh, when I get this question, my response, I won't give that response in the future. Mm-hmm. I, I'm curious, you know, what does a, a, a decision tree look like for something mm-hmm. this complex? Like, you know, there's, there has, in my opinion, for, for, if this is, you know, people programming these conversations, there has to be a limit at what you as the person Mm -hmm. can measure or or choose to measure or score in a particular scenario. So, so let's get into like the design of this. What, what is a, a a branch, how's a branch like this created uh, for a program? Yeah. You know, there are different ways to branch depending on what type of conversation it is, right? Sometimes we have a role play conversation or like a lesson, what we call a lesson conversation, where we are teaching learners in this more like coaching fashion. So there's less of that branching and more of this linear, it's a little bit linear, but with uh, different options for uh, how learners respond. And so that is very different from, let's say, a full branch scenario where we're testing learners on, you know, a variety of different skills and maybe like one or two learning objectives, Mm. right? And where we really want learners to exhibit the, we really want to provide various opportunities for learners to demonstrate the skills that they need to, that we're looking for. And so with that, you know, in thinking about, you know, we want to be able to provide as many opportunities for learners, that sort of branching does get very large sometimes if it's too large we call it like a spit a spaghetti monster and we kind of want to avoid something like that but there are different times where you know if the learner branches down a poor path but they somehow they recover they're mm-hmm. able to loop back and somehow join the middle path or uh, same thing for the middle path and so they do get quite large, but you know we are restricted by the amount of time that we want learners to engage in a conversation, right? Mm-hmm. We like our conversations to be about 15 minutes long for really large branching conversations so that you know if we have two different conversations within one module, we're hoping that our learning experience will be, you know, between 20 and 30 minutes long. We don't really want learners to stay in the headset any longer than that because it does get fairly tiresome, both, you know, on the on the neck and head, but also the eyes. We're not quite there yet where the learners can uh, comfortably uh, experience these learning experiences for like hours on end, yeah. unfortunately. But also in terms of learning, we, you know, we don't want that. We want- yeah based and repeated practice. Yes. Um, But to kind of go back to your question about feedback, you know, what after all those long branching, branching nodes, you know, oftentimes we will provide very formative and tailored feedback at the very end of the conversation. 
uh, you know, telling learners what we saw them demonstrate, uh, telling learners what uh, their strengths and growth areas are, right, and generally how well they performed and how they could do better. So mm. That is so, something so- that we try to incorporate. It, so the, the, it sounds like there is a there's a VR component to all this, but there's also the human component to all this, and mm-hmm. uh, the feedback is still delivered. Kind of, it's like this: the 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 scenario is always going to be the assessment, but then uh, you as the human are going to commu- communicate that feedback. Is it like a debrief, or is it like a, or is it, or do you also do like a full on coaching where it's like, Hey, at this point you made this decision, let's try this next time. Or do you just kind of repeat back the data to the learner and then they interpret, how does it work? We've done that several different ways and it really depends on the use case. So sometimes we'll have feedback pop-ups that provide very tailored information. Sometimes we'll have debrief sessions with a virtual human to talk about you know, what what went well, what went wrong, and how you could improve. And sometimes, and when you say virtual, sorry to interrupt. When you say uh, virtual humans, do you mean like this happens within the space of the experience itself? Oh, typically it'll be a completely separate conversation with like a coach. Mm. That was not part of the original, like the assessment conversation. But, but is that a virtual human or is that a oh, yes, human a vir- reporting in virtually? Okay, great. A virtual human. That's a great question. Uh, a virtual human. So a like a non-player character within this space mm. that is not operated by anyone else, you know, in, in the physical world. Now we're getting to something interesting. I think this is where our worlds kind of collide, where... I'm, we're talking about a virtual human and a synthetic human. I think I'm very curious, how do you design that coach or how do you design? Because I think ultimately with these emerging technologies, what it allows us to do is scale, um, Mm -hmm. scale a human, human, um, uh, capability to a certain extent, what a human can do, like like that would be a person at work who you would Mm -hmm. like you would take an assessment, take those results to that co- that in-house coach, and they would give you feedback and debrief you. But you, in your case, it's a, it's a virtual human. So I don't know if this is a, a huge part of the design or, um, or if it's not, but I, I'm, I'm interested to hear like, what is that experience like in terms of designing the coach or how do you deliver that feedback and how do you design that person um, for that experience? And I know that's a lot of questions, so we I can pitch them to you one by one. No, yeah. Uh, so when we think about well in terms of the virtual human their 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 embodiment right mm-hmm. uh we have a amazing art team who has been able to bring a number of different characters to life and those characters are automatically programmed within our no code authoring tool copilot mm-hmm. designer and so mm-hmm. we can select we have a what we call it a virtual human library. So we can select any of those virtual humans that fit the character, the the physical appearance of someone that we want to use. If we want to create a net new character, then we would need to collaborate with our art team to develop a new character, which we have, we we do that often, and to get that integrated into our tool. Mm -hmm. Uh, When we think about the characters as like persona the the character that they're playing within the the situation that we're uh, putting learners into 
we we create character personas. So mm. just as we might create learner personas to design for the specific learning experiences, we create character personas for the characters that learners will be interacting with, right? And these are really key people uh, that learners interact with in a day-to-day basis in terms of you know the, the, the situation that uh, we're asking learners to engage in, right? Mm-hmm. So for instance, in that sales conversation that uh, we were discussing earlier, the learner might play the role of a sales assistant or sales agent and the various characters that they or are engaging in, if it's a sales conversation, is potentially different customers, right? Mm-hmm. We might have an like a customer with a persona that is like generally angry or maybe uh, is tight has a tight budget or has all these different you know um, confounding circumstances that make the scenario very hard for the learner, right? And that's really what we want to do in terms of creating characters, right? We not only want them to be authentic, but with that that authenticity comes real problems that those characters are dealing with, right? Yeah. So it's, right? So um, one of my favorite per- character personas is this guy named Pete. And Pete is, I think he's an IB banker. Uh, he, he has lots of student loans and he is expected to be on call 24 seven, but the internet is perhaps um, getting a little tight on his budget. Yeah. And so he's conflicted with, you know, wanting to save money, but then also needing to be online 24 yes. seven. And that's a real dilemma for the learner who is trying to sell something like the internet, right? Yes. An internet package uh, where the learner's incentive is to, you know, sell one, the right internet package for, for the customer. So the customer doesn't come back and want to return it or cancel it. Um, but also the learner is expected to upsell and that's yeah. difficult for someone who might be telling you that they have issues, you know, with, with their budget. Yeah. And, and it's you as the learner trying to interpret all those characteristics of the different persona, make decisions around what to say based off of uh, what that other character is putting out. Really, it's, it's mm-hmm. the richness of the character that I think defines whether or not how useful this experience would be. Uh, I'm curious, how much can you tune? Like, let's say we had Darren, who, you know, is a is a banker who's time poor, and, um, but also a family man. It's like, mm-hmm. how much in the in the, I, I'm sure it's easy to, I'm not easy, but I'm sure you could design that persona. But can you dial it up? Like, how much precision do you have? Can you dial up? Uh, how frantic Darren is, or can you dial down how much of a family man this person is rather than these just characteristics? Yeah. So in terms of uh, his demeanor, we are able to dial up his body language, you know, different with gestures or poses. We're able to dial up his like facial expressions. And um, we also have synthetic voices. And so um, those could be, you know, programmed in such a way that they del- convey something with, with high intensity. Mm. Um, in terms of how family man he is, that will be humanly programmed uh, by the, the narrative that we're, mm. we're writing. So the, the dialogue that we're providing or the, the virtual human that w- they would say to the 
the, the learner who is playing the sales customer service agent. And so you would see, let's say something like a family man, you know, perhaps that he he says he has to go to his his son's baseball game soon. He also, he has a you know a short amount of time. Or uh, you know my daughter really likes to play video games, and so we need you know a large bandwidth, something mm. something like that. So you can pick up on like these subtleties that the virtual human will disclose in the conversation, and learners would need to pick up on that to be able to recommend a a viable packet like internet package for for the yeah. for the customer it, it's interesting because like the character design it, it's not like you're just turning up gestures to make them more pronounced in some cases or less it's um the details of the story um mm-hmm. and and kind of not just who the person appears on the outside but getting to their their own mindset and their own decision making you know yeah. as you're, when you're thinking about per- designing personas or designing these scenarios I have a hunch that your life has changed recently with generative AI tools. And I say that because with large language models, they're able to more easily come up with examples and characters. Is is that the case? Are are you folding generative AI or ChatGPT into this process now? Has it changed anything for you? We have been folding it in. And I think what it has changed is how quickly we can get these artifacts to SMEs, Mm. right? So, you know, oftentimes we have the opportunity to interview subject matter experts or target users and then synthesize that information. I ideate on, on personas and then check it back with them to see, you know, how valid is it? Does this seem like a realistic person uh, for, for our, our learners or the circumstances and the people that they're interacting with. And I would really what generative AI has done was expedite the process of creating learner personas or synthesizing the information we have, right? To then create a persona or multiple renditions of personas that we can then validate with subject matter experts, right? So it's not necessarily that we're we're taking the personas that ChatGPT is or any other gen AI tool is just kind of spinning out, but I think it has expedited the process of getting things into the hands of our subject matter experts for critique. And so we yeah. can more easily iterate on, on um, the artifacts that we need to. Yeah, that, I think that's in in general kind of the state of state of the tech at the moment. We call it the human AI sandwich, where it's like <laughs> the human has the the inputs and the intent. The AI does its thing, and then the human measures you know the output for for many different reasons. But mm-hmm. I'm curious, you know, for I think personas and character building, and and, and in particular for scenario based learning, there is a need to develop that full story. And I and yeah. I'm curious, have you you know Everyone has a ChatGPT guide, but do you have a, a process or prompts or steps that you go through that other folks can copy to help develop those personas a little bit more easily? I, we do internally. We mm-hmm. have, so we have a prompt library that all of our internal Tailspin team and all of our clients have access to. Um, and that has actually, we just had a, actually last week had a, 
a, a webinar sort of explaining how we at Tailspin have adopted generative AI and integrated it into our processes. And so one of the things we talked about in that webinar was the standard operating procedure for designing virtual reality and learning experiences and how we have aligned our prompt library to every step of our mm. Yeah. Is that, can you share kind of at a high level, what kind of the stages are without sharing out the prompts or can you kind of walk us through what that process, the SOP looks like? Yeah. You know, I will say that our process is not unlike any other instructional design process, right? Mm -hmm. So there's this discovery phase, there's a design phase, a development phase and a deployment phase, mm -hmm. right? And so specifically for the discovery and design, you know, I think that's where a lot of our instructional design comes in before it's iterative design. And so for that, we've really broken down, you know, subject matter expert interview, um, learning objectives, skills, you know, module outline, you know, things very, and we really just operationalized our tasks as we go through creating a virtual reality experiences and then ideated and prompt engineered different prompts that pr help produce the outputs that we want to see at each operationalized phase. And I would honestly recommend that same procedure for, for anyone who wants to really optimize and standardize their their way of design. It, it has honestly brought a lot of clarity to our team uh, that has helped us really help define and standardize the way we do things at Tailspin. Mm -hmm. so, so it's it's mapping each of those prompts that you would use for, uh, for each of the stages. And I, I think something that I'm pulling out from there is that it's not there's not the idea of a, I think the idea of a mega prompt is almost, um, unless you're creating a conversational model, something that can, you can actually dialogue with to help you think through things and have it hold a set of beliefs. Um, that way of working is, um, is not as effective as being able to generate uh, the right prompts for different stages of the design, have a conversation, make sure that you crystallize what you're thinking during mm -hmm. discovery, you know, based off of insights, or maybe it's coming up with the questions you should ask for the design stage. It's making sure you have all the key questions that you need for a prototype for yeah. development. It's, you know, am I missing it? What stages should I be thinking about and kind of iterating on each of those stages with prompts until mm -hmm. you get to the, uh, until you get to a final idea. Cause I think, as you said, it's not going to do the work for you, but it's helping to, um, it's helping to standardize that process with which you navigate through, uh, designs of scenarios at Tailspin. Yeah. And, you know, as you mentioned, this using like things like ChatGPT and prompting, that is very iterative, right? It's a, sort of this organic flowing conversation and to, to really try and get what you want. And oftentimes, even when we get somewhat close to what we want, we then move that outside of that tool and iterate it on it, out, you know, elsewhere. Um, so I, I do agree that, you know, those mega prompts aren't, they're helpful to some extent, but I don't think they can take you from A to Z. 
Uh, mm-hmm. One of the things that I've been experimenting with recently has been prompt chaining. And so that's when you sort of chain prompts together um, based on outputs using uh, Google Sheets. And I would just quick shout out the AI Exchange has a fantastic prompt chaining template for anyone who wants to go follow their newsletter. I'm not associated with them at all, but they've just really <laughs> helped me <laughs> with yeah. uh, really upskill in my in prompt engineering. Can can you can you give us an example of what a, a prompt chain might look like or look or sound like at a at a high level? Yeah, so a prompt chain might be you input all of your findings from like subject matter experts or or synthesis. And what you can do is ask it maybe to synthesize it in, you know, how many words or so afterward. Um, you may be able to ask it to come up with a number and of different, let's say uh, what you were looking for. Um, sorry, let me just redo that. Sure. <laughs> um, so an example would be, let's say you're doing some research around a specific topic that you're not very familiar with, right? But you have to create a module on it. And so perhaps you're using different tools like elicit or size space or perplexity, um, asking about that specific subject. And you can collect all of that information and then you could input it. Let's say that's your first input. And you can have a prompt that follows that maybe synthesizes it, right? And then you could perhaps have a prompt that follows that says, you know, based on these findings, um, you know, create a mock interview between or like create sneak questions mm. and then maybe the next one is like a mock interview right and then based and maybe you're doing a mock interview asking it to perform like a cognitive task analysis or something mm. and then afterward you chain that output um into create learning objectives for yeah. a course that would so so, that. so it's essentially you're starting off with your your base input data, which is coming directly from your SMEs. So you have these kind of open response questions. You're asking for the insights. And then you're saying, based off of those insights, let's go into the next stage. Let's come mm-hmm. up with prototypes or what are the questions that are the big questions that are coming out of these key insights that I should, you know, what are the knowledge and skills that are being identified? And then you're able to just kind of, like you said, chain all of this information and it's building off of this data set, but also 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 the questions and the decisions that Mm -hmm. the large language model is making. And eventually that leads to your output, which will be more focused. So again, it's not about the mega prompt, but it's about giving large language models enough information to then uh, kind of shave down and focus the response into something that's a bit more useful towards the end, but you still have to do the work. Absolutely. Spot. You can't get away with it yet. Uh, AI can't do the work for you. Um, But uh, I think that that that's a I think that's a, a a good place to end our conversation because I think everybody's still messing with ChatGPT, mm-hmm. uh, even if the hype has died down a little bit. But um, <laughs> I think prompt chaining is is the is the most useful skill I've seen. So, um, Kristen, if if folks want to get in touch with you, learn more about Tailspin, uh, where can they go? Yeah, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or on Twitter. My Twitter 
name is Chris, K-R-I-S, Torrance, L-X-D. All right. And we'll be sure to put a link to that in the show notes. But Kristen, it was wonderful to have you on. Uh, Thank you for taking the time. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's been great.